This is The Passion Economy. I'm Adam Davidson. On today's show, something we all know we can do and probably a lot of us think we should do, but almost none of us actually get around to doing. When I think of the fundamental elements that make up the passion economy, the tools that exist today that didn't exist in the past that allow us to create businesses around our own passion, there's this one I actually don't talk about that much simply because it's so ubiquitous. I'm talking about the web, the internet. It's such a cliche, it's so obvious, it doesn't even seem worth saying, but because of the web, we can perform magic. We can do things that no human beings could ever do before in human history. That's right. We can watch both seasons of Fleabag in one night. At least that's what my producer Lena did, but that is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about things we can do that will add tremendous value to our lives and to the world. On today's show, Tyson Toussaint, a man who used the web to change his life. With high-speed internet access, your knowledge grows exponentially. You can describe Tyson Toussaint in a couple ways. One way might be that he's a college dropout who sort of absurdly decided to overturn an entire multi-billion dollar industry with no formal education, no deep experience, simply by Googling stuff. The other way to describe Tyson is he is the most curious person I've met in a very long time. I don't mean curious like he's a weirdo. I mean curious like he wants to know things at their deepest level. And he will spend all of his free time. He will structure his life around learning things that fascinate him. And that led him to create his company. It's called Bionic Yarn, a material engineering company. So what Bionic Yarn does is it takes plastic bottles from the ocean and turns it into a special kind of yarn. We'll get into all of that soon, but as always, we do this story in three parts. Part one will be Tyson's background, what made him the guy he is today. Part two is that business, Bionic Yarn. What is it? How did he build it? And then part three, perhaps the most important, we pick the story apart for lessons we can use in our own lives and businesses. So part one, the background. Tyson is a New Yorker. His dad came to the U.S. from Panama. His mom is from the States. They settled down on the Upper West Side, right on the border with Harlem. There were a lot of drug gangs and stuff, but it always had like a really small neighborhood feeling because of the Columbia and City College students and professors who lived around. And I guess they always tried to make, you know, a nice little village for themselves. His parents both were very proud to lead lives that were essentially the opposite of the passion economy. They got safe, reliable work. His dad worked with the post office. His mom was an MRI tech. So these were solid middle-class jobs 
but didn't have a lot of passion, a lot of ability to express their personal selves, which was just fine with them. All they wanted was stability. But for Tyson, growing up in Manhattan, he just swallowed the city whole. He saw so many things that lit his curiosity and his passion. Growing up in Manhattan and coming out of my house and seeing the Empire State Building, the museums down the block, Columbia University was the other way, you know, all these great uh, galleries and opportunities to play sports. I just had constant stimulation. And Central Park was right there. I grew up in New York just a little bit before Tyson did. And I remember having so much fun going to the northern end of Central Park. It's not the crowded manicured gardens and carriage rides you see in the movies. That's the southern and central part of Central Park. The north was much more wild back then. My most memorable uh, situations with that was probably walking through Central Park with my father and his time, you know, growing up in Panama. And he was also in Vietnam. So he spent a lot of time camping for survival. And so he would teach me things that he would go through in Vietnam and show me different plants or discuss trees or geology. And this was all what he learned just from being a soldier. And through that, I discovered my love for the outdoors and wanted to really test out my uh, combat boots or my parka or a camping backpack. Now, when Tyson was getting ready to go to college, he didn't really have a model for the life he would eventually figure out he wanted to lead. He wanted a life of passion and exploration and curiosity, but his model was his parents, people who did the responsible thing and got responsible jobs. And so he takes all these crazy passions. He loves the outdoors. He loves learning about outer space. He loves looking for plants in the woods with his dad. And he decides, okay, I'll study science. I'll learn about science. And then maybe I'll get a job that way. So he goes to college in Atlanta. He majors in biology. And it's the opposite of what he was looking for. He's in these classes that don't bring out the passion he felt back home in Manhattan. He says it was only years later when he learned that Malia Obama took a gap year between high school and college that he realized what a huge mistake he had made. Like, I wish I knew about that. That would have done so much more for my life if I just took the time to really figure out who I was I was just 18. I didn't know any better. And if I was like, oh, I want to study science, that could have been something I was just saying because I thought that was the best subject within the world of things that I was studying that would fit my personality. So I just jumped into that and I wasn't really ready for it. So he drops out. He moves back to New York. After I left school, I still had the voices in my head of trying to do something to make an impact so from there, I was like, well, what do I really like? Let's be honest. What do I want my lifestyle to be? How do I want to wake up and go to sleep every day? So I started from there and I was like, okay, I really like sports and I love the environment. So how could I create a business around that? And just asking myself these questions and trying to be as honest as possible. And I was like, if I had control over everything, I'd want a company that were, was like the North Face and Patagonia had a baby. I mean, I've heard of North Face, I've heard of Patagonia, but I don't know enough about them to know what's special about them and what it would mean for them to have a baby together. <laughs> what? what? Uh, well, the North Face 
represented adventure and going to the extremes. Every ad, you'll see, like, a guy hanging off the side of Kilimanjaro with snow in his face on a harness, and that just appealed to me. It was like, I'm extreme, I'm rugged, I'm tough like that in my, like, subway car, you know, well-protected with barely any drizzle coming down, overly teched out. So you would wear the kind of tech gear? Yeah, the more technical and extreme, you know, all-weather conditions, even though we'd never really faced it. I wanted it. And the Patagonia part of it was understanding my uh, part in the bigger world and what you could do to help. And I think Yvonne Chenault really led with that first, his care for the environment, how he weaved it in with the storyline, the products he made. And I was like, if I could have these two things together, that'd be my dream come true. Tyson wants to combine the highly technical, durable equipment philosophy of North Face and the let's make the world a better place, let's help the environment of Patagonia. Tyson sees these two companies and decides to combine the things he likes best about each. He remembers the time he spent in Central Park with his dad. He knows he likes the outdoors, and he wants to make a difference in the world. Now, he's only 20, 21 years old. He just dropped out of college. So he decides to go into direct competition with these major, well-established brands. He creates NSTAR, a line of outdoor gear that Tyson designs. We had a couple of accounts throughout Northeast area. I think we had about three stores carrying our products in Kingston, New York, Woodstock area, Paragon, Tents and Trails, Morris Brothers. In the Upper West Side, it's not there anymore. It used to carry our products and a few other stores. And these were products you designed? And yeah, like, So we what were they? What? Sleeping bags, uh, rucksacks, and tents. So how, like, I'm... You know, I'm almost 50. I've been a business reporter a long time. I would have no idea how to go about creating a line of sleeping bags, rucksacks, and tents. How'd you figure that out in your early 20s? I think I benefited from high-speed internet access coming into our home and, like, understanding uh, where I wanted to end up and reverse designing from there. So I would, like, find products that I like. And through with Photoshop and... Drawing, I would just like make a collage of what my product to look like. And I found factories that understood my way of designing and thinking and through a number of drafts of me saying, like, I want this to be here and that to be here. And can you help me make it more shaped like this? And you see a line in this car. It was just a big mood board that ended up being a product that kind of got my idea out. But from that point, we were able to build towards exactly what I wanted. And each time I went through that process, I got better and better. And then, like I said, the internet, I was able to sign up to Linda and other tutoring services. I learned Photoshop, I learned Illustrator, I learned web design. And so my communication skills for my ideas got better and better over the years. And I met other people who were even better at it than I was. And we worked together and it helped me bring my ideas to light. That is amazing because, I mean, this is one of the big ideas in what I'm calling the passion economy, which is that sort of the speed from which someone's idea or feeling can become an actual product in the world that finds an audience is so fast. I mean, Mm -hmm. we we look at the modern world as like a threat to individuals because there's all these huge companies. They don't need workers. They there's massive inequality. And those are all very real issues, you know automation and outsourcing and all of that, those are deep issues that really do cause a lot of misery. But the flip side of that is we can access 
everything. All of that, yeah. And, yep. I mean, you weren't, you didn't go to fashion school. Nope. You weren't a chemist who had some special view on how to make water-resistant nope. stuff. You just were a guy who knew what you liked or kind of knew kind of what you liked and were willing to play it. That is an amazing Yeah, um, and there's path. like, if you go to most websites for cars or materials, they put everything there. Or if you go to Google, if you're willing to go down to like the 50th O, you'll find a lot of stuff. And so I was just committed to like, okay, I'm searching this one thing and I'm not going to shut my computer off until I get to at least this one and make sure I've combed and looked at everything. And when you just have that sort of dedication, it's all there. So tell me about the products in that first line. What set them apart? What made them special? That was the thing. Nothing. It was nothing really special. Looking. You mean it had a look that was different even or not? Our logo was different. It was enough to claim that it was a different product. We had a different mission statement, a storyline. But when you, for the real designers and the salespeople, they were like, oh, this just looks like the best-selling North Face sleeping bag with a, you know, a color swap and maybe a pocket over here. And that's for the most part what it was. As a young man, Tyson realizes something that many of us take our whole lifetime to figure out that even though he's making some money, even though his business is very slowly growing, he is not different from anyone else. He's not differentiated. And that is not good business. The core idea of the Passion Economy podcast is that we have to be doing something that nobody else is doing because only we can do it. At the same time, he also feels like a phony. Like his whole dream was to change the world and all he's doing is basically knockoff gear from two major established companies. He's not doing anything special. I was presenting myself as if I wanted to be a change in the industry. We're like, well, you have to work a little harder to do that. And in trying to find my avenue in doing that, I would, you know, constantly read everything on the tags. I remember stumbling on a Patagonia fleece that had part recycled plastic bottles in it. And naively, I asked myself, why doesn't everything have this? You know, if you're an outdoorsman, you care about the environment, why limit it to the fleece? Turns out there's a pretty good reason. That's after the break. With the discovery of that Patagonia fleece, a flame was lit in Tyson Toussaint's belly. He wanted to change the world. The idea was to wear the responsibility of your environment, to try to find a way to embed the things that are hurting it in your clothing and make it so strong that it could last for generations. In the same way, you may find Chanel products in thrift stores that are from four or five generations, except these products will have a lot of the bad things that are destroying our environment, like the plastic. It's a great idea, right? Take garbage from the oceans and turn it into durable clothing. But to actually achieve it, you have to become an expert in chemical engineering, in plastics, in all of these things that Tyson had no training in. I know, kind of summed it up like it was just so quick and easy. It wasn't. I, of course, had to be concerned with money. And while I was in college, I toyed around with DJing. When I dropped out and came to New York City, I made that a focus because I figured if I could have my days open to pursue my entrepreneur ideas, that'd be great. So a job like bartending or DJing would be the best fit for me. So uh, I always loved music, 
and I just dropped myself into DJing. I was lucky enough to have good contacts to help me get started, and that became my way of making money where I could work three to four nights a week and have enough money to cover my expenses and even and some, I mean, even invest into research or traveling to investigate more about my project. So it took time. Tyson's very first step is to try to answer a question. He loves the idea of this fleece, this fleece that takes garbage from the ocean and turns it into clothing. But he doesn't understand why Patagonia isn't using it on all their gear. It's such a compelling story. The chemical base of a plastic bottle and polyester is pretty much the same. So when you melt down plastic bottle, it's at the same starting point as the liquid form of the polyester that's extruded to turn into the fiber, except the recycled version of it has so many impurities that it is not as strong as straight petroleum. So that was one of the limitations and something we had to understand and why Patagonia didn't use it across their entire line or any other brand that was using this. It fit perfectly within a fleece if you're going to wear it around a college campus or whatever because it's not that serious. You don't need to worry about being on a mountain and not performing. So once I started to understand more about the levels of textiles and abrasion and tensile strength, then I was like, okay, so how do we increase the abrasion and tensile strength of this recycled fiber so you can have this weaker fiber at the uh, liquid form in a jacket, like a snowboard jacket, and rely on it to have good tensile and abrasion strength. Wow. So let me just make sure I understand it. So if you melt down a water bottle or whatever, you can make polyester yarn Mm -hmm. and then make a garment or a sleeping bag or a tent out of it. But because there's all this junk in it, it'll just rip more easily and and holes will come and and if you're, you know, you're climbing El Capitan or whatever, day 16, you can't suddenly have a big hole in your tent. And if right. that happens twice, an outside magazine says this thing sucks, then your whole company is gone. Is gone. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so for like real outdoorsmen, people in the military, Coast Guards, you know, park rangers, they need things that perform. Yes, they love the environmental story, but they have an actual job to do that requires that their gear works. All right. But once again, you're not a chemist, you're not a expert in you're not a expert in polyester or in petroleum-based fibers or anything like that. So how I mean you're you now seem to know a lot about it. So what I mean to me it's it's cool, but it's really remarkable for you to be like, "Oh, I can take this on," even though like I could imagine myself thinking, "Well, there's probably a million companies that looked at this. There's nothing I can add to it." Uh that was probably a conclusion I came to many times. And for whatever reason, when I got frustrated, because you quit when you start something new, you probably quit a million times, probably quit two months ago. It's like, oh, it's too hard. I can't do it. And then you get inspired and something brings you back to look under something, to look into something you didn't look into before. And then that just opens up a whole nother avenue of understanding. And that just keeps happening to me. It's like I always find new inspiration and motivation to look deeper. And I'm very fortunate to find the right people at the right time to like put the extra battery in my back to go further. And so this college dropout nighttime DJ Googling away actually solves the problem. He solves the strength problem. 
The first version of our yarn is the patented version. It's called a HLX Helix yarn. And it's a three-layered yarn, one being a continuous filament uh, string, which is sort of like fishing wire. And then that's the structure of the yarn, the body, which holds a lot of it together. And on top of that, we wrap the recycled plastic fiber around that. And the plastic fiber is then embedded between the core fiber and the outside, which we call the helix, which is the feeling of whatever you want the fabric to be at the end. So you can have a helix outside wrap of linen, cotton, nylon, another high-tenacity polyester or synthetic fiber, and those three things together make our new version of yarn. I see. So, and is that at the, like... Yeah. Kind of string level? It's string not, level. It's not at the woven garment exactly. level. at the string level. Wow. So then that goes into a machine that weaves or knits or whatever it yes. does. All right. So walk me through how you, like, how do you make a better polyester thread out of plastics? How do you, both how do you learn how to do that? And then what can you tell me about the actual technical details? Well, how you learn how to do it is not as hard as people would think. Most of the factories and mills that make these things, once they're like in the door, these are full of knowledgeable engineers who are kind of bought by your time and saying you're going to make X amount of yards, and they just spill their beans to you, and they tell you everything. And the information that they jumpstart you with and the time you have alone with high-speed internet access, just your knowledge grows exponentially. And each time you come in front of them, you're more knowledgeable. You go into a deeper dive with them, and it just keeps growing. Where were these factories that you were working with? Oh, South Carolina, North Carolina. We started doing this at an interesting time when the uh, textile industry in the South was completely shutting down. And so these people were selling off machines. They really had no real business there. They were shifting everything overseas. So while we were coming up with our idea, we would just, like, talk to people at one foot out the door and, like, would entertain us by talking to us and pointing us in the right direction. That's the other thing, too. I call it luck. I also call it, like, if you're really into something, people will help you, like, People literally just walked me into where I was going. Because you were passionate. You were genuinely curious. You wanted to know. You were grateful for the advice. Yeah, and all of those things. Willing to share while skeptical about what I was doing. We're like, okay, if you were to do this, here's what you would do. And then each time I had that conversation, it would lead to another piece of the puzzle. And I was like, okay, just talk to people and you'll figure it out. Yeah, I've actually spent a fair bit of time in textile mills and textile companies in South Carolina, North Carolina, and for different reporting. And it is such an interesting transition because these were so focused on big bulk orders. Mm -hmm. And now, and most are gone, but the ones that survive, survive by focusing on small but high value added products. Mm -hmm. And so it that is, you're exactly right about the timing. If you had called them five years earlier, they'd be like... Too busy. Yeah. Are you going to order 200000 If not, uh, we don't have the time for you. My whole situation is based on timing and, like, a lot of luck. We, we worked hard, but, oh, my God, if there weren't these lucky transitions in along the timeline of what I was doing, there's no way I'd be here. And how long did it take you to come up with that formula? Um... The idea was there, but it took about three to four years to get it to a point of commercialization. Wow. How did you live? Is just off of DJing? Or? Yeah. So once he has this super yarn, this thread that 
is both environmentally responsible but also durable, he's still thinking relatively small. He's just thinking he'll put that into his gear brand, NSTAR. He's going to all these trade shows and conventions, lugging around knapsacks and tents made out of his new special yarn. As we got better with the fabric and putting it into our finished product, we would also just show it to other brands to get their opinion. And they, of course, were like, oh, the product's not so special, but we like this fabric. So after hearing that a few times, we just pivoted completely and was like, you know what, let's just use these products here as an example of what it could be like in a finished product. But let's build a business around making our fabric a component brand that everyone in this convention center can use. So that's what he did. He built a component brand. A component brand is... uh, Sort of like the materials that are also branded on your products. Gore-Tex would be a famous Gore-Tex is a famous example that we modeled our company after. Wow. So it's like being in that convention center where you see, like, I can be in Tents and Trails, which for people not from New York is a wonderful but super crowded, cramped store that sells tents and sleeping bags and stuff. So... I could see, like, okay, in there, there's whatever, several hundred people a day. Or I can go to a convention center where each of those people represents tens or hundreds of thousands or millions of products. So visually, I see why you're like, no, no, I want to sell to everyone in the convention center, not to everyone in tents and trails. Yeah, it's like I'd rather have 50 people that I'm trying to sell to who are dropping our products into hundreds of thousands or millions of things instead of having to really work hard to sell you to buy my product and then do that again to another person. So if I just focus in on 50, 25 to 50 customers who are the uh, shot callers and fabric decision makers and all these companies, I could really build a business for less work. NSTAR, his outdoor gear label, fades into the background. Bionic yarn is the business now. Tyson has patented three different yarns, as well as a polymer, all made from plastic collected from marine and coastal environments. Because remember, Tyson knew early on that to feel fulfilled, he needed to be changing the world. He needed to work in some of that Patagonia model. Cleaning the oceans, that is a great way to change the world. I can tell you from firsthand experience, Tyson's passion, his hunger to improve the world and improve his business is infectious. He's a great conveyor of his own story. And he starts infecting other people with his own excitement. There's a group of professors at North Carolina State who helped him develop his yarns. He makes those relationships with textile factory engineers, people who taught him about manufacturing the textiles, how to create samples. In 2007, Pharrell, the musician, heard about what Tyson was doing, and he was so impressed with Bionic Yarn's mission, he came on as creative director and helped establish connections between the company and all sorts of big brands. So Tyson's material is being used in clothes, upholstery, backpacks. Chanel, that very fancy brand, had a line featuring Bionic Yarn. Tyson has found the niche that he craved the place where his love of problem-solving and learning, his passion for the environment and the outdoors, his fascination with fashion and design, they all combine. He can truly change the world and make a living doing it. So how can we do that too? That's after the break. So what did Tyson do right? 
and what can we copy from him? First off, he was really open to self-criticism. He continuously learned from what he did wrong. Fumbling and making mistakes is like the best way to be knowledgeable because you don't want to do that again. So first off, Tyson finds himself in college and realizes, wait, I shouldn't be here. This isn't exciting to me. This isn't feeding my passion or my dreams. So he very bravely, because everyone was telling him not to, learned from that mistake. He left college. And frankly, if he was my kid, I'd be pretty worried about him at that point. But he enters the next phase of his life with enormous discipline. He's taking advantage of every tool out there to learn on his own, to learn things that he wasn't learning in college. So he could create the career that would leave him feeling the most fulfilled. Then he creates a job that he thought would be the perfect fit, designing outdoor gear with some new colors or extra zippers here and there, and quickly identifies the fact that this isn't working. It's not working as a business, and it's not making him happy. He's not truly adding value, financial value, environmental value. And that is so important and is worth repeating. It's one of the most important things anyone trying to make it in the passion economy must do, figuring out how to add value, not just be a cog in a machine, not just take a job because it's a job, how to ensure you're not just making a product that lots of other people can make and trying to make it a little cheaper or a little faster. Adding value means creating some product or service that really only you can create and that some group of people out there desperately want and are willing to pay more for. Then when Tyson realizes he's making something special, something that really satisfies his passion, he has this intuition that there are other people out there who will share that passion, and he figures out how to find them. Understanding what social media means to us now, I think I understood it then. I knew that if I could amass a group of 25,000 to 100,000 people within like, I don't know, 10 to 15 year period who liked my mission who were into the products that I made, whether they were spread out across the whole world, I could have a successful business. And if I made, I don't know, 10 to $20 profit from each of them, you know, every year and a little bit more over time, like I figured out these numbers and people without having Instagram, even before Friendster, I just knew that if I could reach these people, and I think what sparked that was seeing the internet and interacting with people all over the world. I'm like, my friend next to me does not care about this, but I contacted this virtual assistant in the Philippines, and he's so excited about what I'm talking about. And I just felt that energy. I'm like, okay, soon I'll have enough money and reach to get to these people. And then thank God, you know, the people of Silicon Valley made it easy for me to get to them. And so once those two things came together, I was just like, as long as I keep going in this direction and I communicate to my audience, I'll have a business. And then luckily, outside of that, you know, there are a bunch of niche things that will never have the same platform of sustainability. But people have, you know, experimental music projects that you never hear any promotion about it, but they still are successful because they've reached their customer. I mean, I don't want to compare myself to Radiohead, but they're kind of like that, too. It's just this huge thing that speaks to their people all over the place. And social media just like amplifies that. And so me on a smaller scale, I understood that. And then the tools came along with the thinking to help blow that out. Oh, that's a beautiful, beautiful description of exactly something we talk about a lot on The Passion Economy, which is that, I mean, you just said it perfectly, that if you needed, say, 100,000 customers, there might not be 100,000 in New York City. 
And what are you going to do? Take out ads in every paper in the world, including the Philippines, to find those people is cost prohibitive. And then how do you get the garment to them far away? And that is the wonderful side of globalization and the internet revolution and outsourcing and all of those things, because it just, you can find that community instantly. And Tyson does not stop there. He keeps learning. He listened to what people were telling him about his product. He realized he could do more as a component brand, even though he had spent all of his life so far trying to make a consumer brand. He reevaluated who his customers should be. He realized that fewer customers but more passionate customers could lead him to far more consumers and success. So you want it to be a business-to-business brand, but you wanted the end user to value your brand. Exactly. Because obviously there's there's probably a ton of textile manufacturers who the consumer will never know about, but are might have some business-to-business brand that manufacturers know about. But you didn't want that. You wanted the end user to crave your product. Yeah, we wanted them to know that this label meant that there's a promise to you that we're keeping, that we are not taking any shortcuts in how we go about collecting these plastics, processing them, and putting them into whatever end product they end up in, and that what the label says is true. And we really care about making a change in the environment, and we're using our materials to embed one of our biggest problems. And why not just build a business-to-business brand? Just focus on the handful of consumer brands and manufacturers and just compete there. Why do you want the end user, who's never going to directly pay you money, to have strong feelings about you? Because we want the end user to have strong feelings about us, so they're our promotion to the brands. And so if we get the end user passionate about it, it makes selling to the brands like a downhill ski race. Right. Yeah, that's what I assume. And it transforms the conversation with Patagonia or whoever because... Yeah, we're being bought and we're not selling. You know, yeah. we're already sold to the customer by promising them we're doing this with the environment. We're putting this type of plastic in your clothing. You can rely on us for that. And once that customer starts to catch on, it made it easier to walk into all the brands that we've dealt with and tell our story. Now, why not just be a totally consumer-facing brand where you're actually creating the garments and selling directly to consumers or through retailers to consumers? Because this was, first and foremost, about a mission and having impact. And if we could sell to a globe of brands who all need hundreds of thousands and millions of yards of fabric, the stat at the end of the year would be much larger than, let's say, what Patagonia could say alone. But if we sell to Patagonia, we sell to Adidas, we sell to North Face, if we sell to a furniture company, then it's endless. Talk to me about the business now. What's going on? Show off a little. Where are you? (laughs) Now we're at a place where we've built the collection center. We've set up a recycling facility in Nicoya Peninsula, Costa Rica, and you can now trace the plastic that's in your end product all the way down to the hand of the person who picked it up. And we're really happy about that because it's a a mission. And our mission is to clean up the coastal communities and marine communities around the world. And we picked a place that didn't have recycling infrastructure and we built that up. And now we're shipping the collective plastic to these factories across the world to be processed and put into products. I should say when you got here, you had a plastic cup of, was it iced coffee? 
And you said, where's the recycling? I want to throw it yeah. out. You know, I shouldn't know. have that either, but no excuses. <laughs> uh, that's all right. You did insist on the recycling. So. Yeah. so give me a sense of the scale now. Like how many plastic bottles, how many? Okay, now to make the most of what we've invested in, we need to collect 30,000 tons a month. And we're at about 15,000 right now. And by the end of this year, we should be at 30,000 or more. Wow. Yeah. And then how is the plastic melted and turned into yarn? Well, first it's gathered, we sort it, we break it apart by color, type. After that, it's bailed. And that's your employees doing Our that? Our employees do, yeah. yes. In Costa Rica? In Costa Rica. And then from there, we fill up a container. The container is then shipped to another plant that turns the plastic into flakes. It washes it, and then it's turned into pellets. And then in pellet form, is sent to two different places, one that makes our hard products for injection mold or blow molding, furniture, toys, housing for electronics. And then the other portion goes to textile factories for fabrics and woven, non-woven things. So you're about half the size you want to be, it sounds like. Yeah. So your competitors, I imagine, are massive. Like, if you're talking about just bulk fabric that just makes, like, regular T-shirts or whatever, it's... It is Endless. mind-numbing how much is produced every second. And so, and I'm guessing that's who you're competing with, right? These huge mills in Asia and, and maybe a few in, in the U.S. Yeah, we're competing with them in a sense, but for the most part, we're not because our business is driven by the mission. These guys, their business is driven by how much they can unload. And uh, we start our conversations with customers with how much of your product line are you willing to dedicate to removing plastic from the environment? How much of the tonnage are we collecting monthly can you say you guys are going to buy? And then from there, we figure out the different yarn styles that we can make to apply to whatever products they want to make. So we really put the mission first and foremost, whereas these guys are coming in with, you know, an airplane full of textiles, and all they need to do is do well with one of them, and they just make tons of money. And that's like an old way of thinking that's kind of considered irresponsible right now because we need to really be careful about what we're doing in overproducing just to make a sale. What is the future? Is it just making this product more and more and more, expanding the plastic collection ability? Are there pivots to making your own garments, pivots to other kind of like fundamental materials that can be made out of recycling, recycled products? We know that Bionic's existing end product is only buying time because someday the products we're making are going to end up in the environment one way or another. So we're just keeping it out of it longer. But with the money we make from sales, we're dedicated to R&D, to figuring out, you know, the moonshot of products, something that completely uh, decomposes into the earth. We haven't gotten there yet, but there are a bunch of ideas out there now that uh, if they're brought to a large scale, could be amazing. So we're just on that track. We're trying to figure out what's the alternative to plastic in general. And until we can find that, here's what we're going to do. The Passion Economy is a three Uncanny Four production. It's hosted by me, Adam Davidson, and produced by Lena Richards. Our music is composed and performed by Casey Halford. 
Our sound engineer is Gene Montalvo. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. If you want to learn more about the theories in this podcast, check out my book, aptly named The Passion Economy. 